Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello and welcome to the World Fellows podcast. My name is Emma Skye and I'm director of the World Fellows program at Yale. My guest today is Kambar Hussainbar. Kambar, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. So Kambar, you were born in Iran into an ethnic minority, the Baluch. Do you have memories of your life in Iran? Uh, thanks, Emma. Yes, uh, I was born in Iran, and my parents belonged to uh, the minority, the Baluch. And just by way of background, the Baluch are a minority that exist in Iran, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. And they also live in a diaspora in other parts of the Gulf. And they are a cultural and linguistic uh, minority in Iran, but also a religious minority. Broadly speaking, they belong to the Persian, sort of the Indo-European and Persian branch of of the language and that particular route. Um, yes, I do have memories of my time in Iran. When I came to the UK when I was seven, uh, prior to that, I'd spent um, time in Iran uh, at school, for example. Well, I remember that at that time they had um, corporal punishment. That's something I remember. Were you very naughty at school, Campbell? Well, <laughs> I could have been better behaved. Uh, hence, I, I remember some of the episodes which are uh, probably uh, more painful than others. Um, I also remember everyone had to do it back then, um, chant uh, death, death, to, uh, I remember me certainly right, uh, the... US, Israel, and maybe very occasionally the UK as well. Uh, uh, that was the politics of back then. Um, and I also remember more familial issues, such as um, going to uh, the mosque with my grandfather. Uh, my mum uh, had to leave Iran because of uh, political issues, so I spent a long time living with my grand grandfather. And what do you mean by political issues? Well, she was involved in the politics of the pre-revolution Iran and the post-revolution Iran. She belonged to that generation where amidst all the sort of revolutionary uh, activities, she was very active and involved. And because of the um, fallout from the revolution, lots of people fled Iran and she took the decision that she had to flee as well. Um, and she was very prominently involved in issues around uh, education and health. Um, so she had to flee without you? She couldn't take you with her? That's right, yes. Um, so I spent some time um, with my mum, um, and sorry, with my grandfather. And so now I, uh, I, rem I remember, uh, you know, a very sort of loving environment. You know, there were challenges, because this was still during the Iran-Iraq war. So I do remember... Era. So this is in the 80s? Yes, this is about... I left in 87. So I do remember sirens, for example, air raid sirens going on, and everyone had to close the curtains and watch the TV intently because even though uh, we lived far away from the front line, uh, there were still air raid sirens going on, and it was a difficult time for people during, during the war. Uh, but uh, I'm fortunate enough to say that I was, you know living within a, in a sort of a loving environment, and that, that really helped. But how did you escape from Iran? Well, uh, the border between Iran and Pakistan is very porous, and uh, a decision had been taken by the family that um, I, I should be joining my mother in the UK. And as such, uh, 
uh, I left with my sister and uh, we went through the border uh, like many people do. And once we arrived in Pakistan, we were able to, and I don't remember it exactly, but as I understand, um, we were able to facilitate uh, passage to the UK under the auspices of the UNHCR as designated refugees. And At that age, did you know that you were escaping or was it sort of presented as, oh, we're going on a holiday? Um, I don't, to be honest, because I was still quite young, I don't remember it exactly, but I do remember having arrived in the UK, I did have this blue little travel document. I remember uh, it was, I found it quite interesting, the colour, it was blue, and it was very bright blue, the UNHCR uh, a document for refugees. Um, but in so far as escaping, no, I think I have these dim, distant memories of, of some sort of journey, yeah. but I don't think I was in a position to sort of rationalise and comprehend what was happening. Uh, I, I th- uh, and I know for a fact I was very happy to finally be, uh, you know, with, with my mother. Um, How long had it been since you'd seen her? I, it must have been, you know, a long time, really. Uh, th- well, I think uh, she, when I was two or three, she, we, I, I was told that we hadn't seen each other. So obviously I don't remember that. Yeah. Um, so um, it's, it was a long time. But did you recognise her? Um, good question. I, th- I know I often thought about her when I was in yeah, Iran. You must have had photos of her. Yes, I often thought yeah. about her and tried to, uh, you know, I think there were discussions in the family about her and stories about her. But I, to be frank, I don't actually remember that first point of of seeing her again. So what are your first memories of you know, being in the UK it must have seemed so foreign. Did you even speak any English when you arrived? Uh, no, when I arrived, I didn't speak any English. Um, I um, The memories were overall quite positive, uh, as far as I remember. We were living in Southampton at the time. And uh, from my perspective, I was in a very uh, sort of um, caring environment, both with respect to my teachers and my and uh, my fellow school pupils. I remember that myself and my sister, we were probably one of the very few non-white people in the school, but notwithstanding that, uh, I don't recall ever being made to feel as though uh, we were different in that regard. I think, on the contrary, I get the impression that extra effort was taken to really embrace us, and um, we, you know, I certainly felt very much part of the school, part of, uh, you know, part of the gang that played football in the playground. Um, we used to have little, uh, we used to make these origami frogs and have these wrestling uh, competitions between anyone <laughs> one. And I remember me and another friend, we got involved in writing these series of cartoons, uh, Inspector Cambar and PC Coleman, and I've still got <laughs> copies of those. Um, Did you learn English just by osmosis? Yes, um, I think. You, at that age, you, you've just got to adapt very, very quickly. You know, I do remember... Were your football skills good? Um, I think I was a trier. <laughs> I, was, I was one of those who would never give up. I would, be, I would run around a lot, and the people appreciated that. I do remember one episode where I was trying to signal I needed to go to the toilet, and I was saying toilet in Farsi, and, I, I, and obviously I didn't know at the time that was... English, very similar word. So I do remember there are times where 
you know, you make an effort and the where the languages overlap, they help. So after school, you went to train as a lawyer. What made you want to be a lawyer? Um, well, by way of background, uh, my biological dad, he and my mum uh, had split up when I was very young and he was in the US. And he'd gone to the US afterwards and he'd, he had been a lawyer. And I think at a young age, I'd heard about this, that he was a lawyer. So at the back of my mind, it was a thought. thought you should be one too. thought yeah. uh, that sort of, was a seed that was planted there. But over time, as I uh, grew up, I, I'd been brought up in a very sort of environment where there's a lot of discussion about issues around politics and issues around justice and issues around wanting to uh, be fair in terms of a fair society. And I think by being exposed to that at a young age, listening to all these adults talk around these issues around me, uh, I think that also helped me realise that law was a very powerful means by which individuals could empower themselves and those around them through understanding how society works and how you can shape it. So uh, for me, I did see it as a as a potential route to, to empower myself. So you are now a member of the British Foreign Service. And I can't imagine in the British Diplomatic Service there are many who are Iranian-born, that there are many who are Baluch or Muslim. So that must have been sort of quite a novelty for the Foreign Service. But also, what made you decide that you wanted to be a British diplomat? Sure. Well, I think on the point about being born Iran and Baluch, you're probably right. But on the point of being Muslim, I'm, I know for a fact there are quite a few uh, British diplomats who are Muslim. Um, but insofar as what I, why I joined the Foreign Service, um, for me, I joined as a lawyer, as an international lawyer. And the reason for that was that I'd always been international interest in international politics and the best way sort of best way to practice international law by virtue of that interest in international issues was at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. I practiced as a barrister for a year or two and I soon realized it was uh, it was an area which was difficult to be instructed as a junior lawyer. And I remember seeing an advert in the Sunday Times saying that the Foreign and Commonwealth Office was recruiting for uh, lawyers and I told my mum and my friends that I'd be joining well, I, sorry, I, I wanted to apply, and I think they. That was a little bit optimistic. <laughs> yes, I think they, they. I think a lot of people, you know, realised that although from their perspective they thought I was being a little too aspirational, because naturally from their perspective, what they thought was the case was that namely the Foreign and Commonwealth Office was this bastion of the British establishment, and first and foremost they only recruit people who look a certain way, namely white and male and secondly even if that wasn't the case they wouldn't recruit someone who was not born in the UK but I'd applied and um, I'm happy to say that everything worked out um, you know my security clearance took about twice as long as <laughs> the average and I think that's understandable not being born in the country and you're going to be privy to a lot of information people want to be as sort of judicious as possible and it got to the point where I didn't think it ever get itself sorted out but fortunately it did and uh, when I joined I think it was from from certainly from my mum's perspective I think it it certainly helped her realise that her dream of what the UK was namely a sanctuary by which 
people can go and better themselves and and be free from uh, you know persecution and so on. I think it certainly dawned on her that I was a manifestation of that. From my perspective, it was a you know it was a wonderful feeling. But I'll never forget the fact that having joined the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, I was in a rather privileged position of being in an institution which a couple of hundred years ago, uh, two hundred years ago, I think was deciding the fate of my ancestors in the Middle East. Uh, my, you know, my administrative predecessors were doing that. But now um, this, this modern, vibrant, and in my view, very uh, sort of great country was giving me the privilege to play a different role in international affairs. And uh, it was a slightly quirky feeling, but I think it's a sign of, of, of how far we have come as a country and a society. And where have you served as a diplomat? So in terms of my substantive postings, uh, where I've been for sort of quite a long period of time, I've been in uh, Baghdad and uh, The Hague in the Netherlands. And in terms of smaller little missions, uh, I've had the privilege to go to places like um, Libya, uh, Geneva, New York, um, uh, Vienna, to name a few. And what happens if there's a policy that you disagree with? Sure. I get asked that question a lot. And I often sort of fall back on my legal training as such. I remember when I was a barrister, I got instructed to uh, represent uh, people on whose cases or whose allegations against them um, I may not necessarily uh, have sympathy with, but I had a professional duty to do my best and using that analogy for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, you know, the strength of our system is that uh, officials like myself, uh, power does not rest in our hands. It rests in the hands of elected officials. And uh, those elected officials have that democratic mandate. And from my perspective, uh, my job is to be as professional as I can in terms of um, carrying out my functions. Obviously, there are times when you may have concerns over an issue, uh, but I'm, I'm pleased to say that when those times have arisen within the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, I feel as though I have the space to express different views and to try and, within the context of um, other diplomats and civil service, to, to see whether there is a consensus or not. But rightly so, uh, the ultimate decision is always in the hands of elected officials. So, a few months ago, there was a vote in the UK about whether to remain in the European Union or to leave. How did you vote? Am I allowed to ask how you voted? Well, I think you're not allowed to ask how I voted. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or what newspaper you read, but (laughs) I'm going to ask, how did you vote? Um, Well, I think I'm still a serving diplomat, so (laughs) I think in that respect... um, it's probably not appropriate for me to comment on how I voted. But I, I'm, I am more than happy to engage in uh, sort of the issues about what happens next. Well, the majority of people, 52%, voted to leave the European Union. Why do you think the Brexit campaign won, the Leavers won? Well, it's, it's interesting uh, and a very important question. To my mind, I think... Uh, the majority of those who voted to leave felt as though they had been 
A, left behind in terms of the material benefits of globalization. B, I think they felt neglected in terms of their issues being being seen to be addressed. And C, I think uh, that sense of powerlessness uh, was certainly evident in terms of people's perceived or otherwise reaction around uh, control and immigration. So I think the combination of that uh, probably resulted in uh, the vote to leave. But I think if you look at it from a very deep and, f and sort of fundamental level, the UK's relationship with Europe, as many commentators have noted, has always been one of almost a reluctant partner. We, we yeah. joined the initiative late on. And since then, we have um, always been very clear in expressing reservations where necessary and trying to ensure that the the unit the polity as it were reflects the issues around economic prosperity and certainly having reservations around issues which might undermine the democratic mandate of nation states i think those issues over time uh, became more and more acute I mean, a lot of the rhetoric in the campaign seemed to be against openness to the world, to be against internationalism. Where do you feel Britain as a country is headed? I mean, this is the country that used to rule half the world, and now it's got trouble governing its own little islands. I mean, is, it, is the UK, is it just looking inwards? Well, historically speaking, as you know, the UK has been one of the most outward-faced uh, countries in the world. You know, we're an island, and we have been... Uh, uh, by virtue of that, we have been going out and engaging with all parts of the world. And it's, and it's that openness which has been intrinsic to our success and to making us what we are today. Now, are we still an open country? Yes, of course, I would say that. Um, for me, uh, the leaving of the European Union doesn't mean leaving Europe. Uh, I think that's a point which gets lost quite a bit. Um, what it does mean and this is what's the exciting aspect for me, and it's this sort of global Britain agenda, namely it gives us the uh, option and almost it compels us to engage with the rest of the world in a much more meaningful fashion. Um, and you know, from the, you know, hopefully the European Union will continue to be a success because Europe needs UK, U UK needs Europe, but our future should be more than just the relationship we have with the European Union, our future should be uh, to continue our heritage of being open and engaged with all parts of the world, especially parts of the world where uh, we have Commonwealth relationships and historical relationships. Campbell, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.